enjoying that song. I haven't sang it in a long time. Well, we're glad you're all here with us. We got people in the parking lot able to hear me? They're always so enthusiastic with those car horns, aren't they? That's great. And uh, we got Zoom set up here. And not a few, not just a, not a few people, but pretty good little crowd here in the auditorium. So uh, we are going to try to wrap up our series on the Unity Dreamers this morning. Uh, I know this history stuff has not been everyone's cup of tea, but a lot of you have really enjoyed that, and it's kind of uh, put some pieces of our puzzle together for some of you. Not all of us are from uh, Restoration Heritage, uh, necessarily. Uh, And so hopefully you've got some good things out of this. I kind of view our history, I kind of went into this thinking some of our history, it's kind of handcuffs that we're bound to. But now I see it a lot more as an invitation to explore. And uh, I see some of the heart of these early restoration guys more as an invitation for us than anything else now. So uh, I'm going to hold off a little bit on the series that I'm calling The Call of the King, and uh, we're going to do that late, uh, later this spring, and instead next week, Lord willing, we're going to jump into some study of First Peter, so also some good stuff there. But where we left off last week, it was with the two largest groups of the Restoration Movement going through different kind of conflicts and hardships but they were also refining what they believed, and they were growing as individual movements. So on Alexander Campbell's side, you know, Thomas and Alexander Campbell, Walter Scott was part of this, the disciples. And then on the other side, we have Barton W. Stone, the Stone Movement. Well, in the late 1820s and 1830s, the Christians of the Stone Movement began to come into more and more contact with the disciples of the Campbell Movements. And even though they had started completely independently of one another, in different areas and under different circumstances, the Christians and the disciples, they discovered that they had a remarkable number of similarities. So let's look at a few of the similarities that they discovered as they just started to come in contact with each other. Both accepted the Scripture as the sole authority for Christian faith and denied that creedal statements should be bound on the church. Both pleaded for Christian unity on the basis of a return to the Bible. Both rejected a Calvinistic theology, including doctrines of predestination and limited atonement. Instead, they believed that the gospel should be preached to everyone and that anyone can believe it and obey it. Both rejected infant sprinkling and practiced immersion of believers, and both taught that there was some relation between baptism and the forgiveness of sins. Both refused to accept unscriptural or sectarian names. We just use Bible words and Bible names, they said. Both rejected the authority of denominational organizations, such as presbyteries, synods, and associations. And instead, they promoted the full autonomy of the local church. Well, that was an, that's, that's amazing to me, that two completely independent groups just with nothing more than the Bible, they would come to these same conclusions. 
But there were also a number of differences between these groups. First of all, they went by different names. The Campbell group preferred the designation disciples, just call us disciples, where the Stone group preferred to simply be called Christians, just call us Christians. And so early on, the disciples of Christ, the Christian church, and the church of Christ, they were all used interchangeably. They didn't mean different things at that time. Another difference is the stone Christians did not emphasize baptism for the remission of sins as forcefully as the Campbell side of the movement did. Another difference was the disciples insisted upon sharing communion weekly. Stone said, we have neglected to take the Lord's Supper every week. Uh, Not that he had a problem with that or was necessarily against it. Another difference the Campbell disciples emphasized an intellectual approach to faith. Faith was seen as an act of reason. Uh, we reason together from the scriptures. Stone Christians held out that, yes, that is good, but emotion also has a role in our faith. And it's, good, it's a good thing for sinners to be able to weep and mourn as they sought salvation, he said. And then there's the difference, the role of the Holy Spirit. Stone emphasized the role of the Spirit in our lives, in the process of conversion, whereas in the disciple side of our movement, they were just largely silent about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In fact, uh, Barton Stone, his biggest concern with this merger was over the Holy Spirit, the differences with the disciples. He says the disciples were not sufficiently explicit on the influence of the Spirit. And it's really the disciples' kind of side and way of thinking that really uh, became uh, the leading thought within our movement. But in my mind, it's nothing short of a miracle that two completely different movements out of completely different circumstances could arrive at so many similar beliefs and practices. Doesn't that strike you as amazing? And remember, these were not the only groups that were having a restoration movement. We looked a few weeks back over at the Haldane movement out coming out of the Church of Scotland, the O'Kelly movement coming out of Methodism in Virginia and Carolina, and then we have a Smith-Jones restoration movement coming out of New England states, Then you have the Campbell, Thomas and Alexander Campbell's movement uh, from Baptist background and seceder Presbyterians in the Northwest Territory on this map, but the the Ohio, Pennsylvania, Northern Virginia into Kentucky area. And then you have the Stone movement, largely in Ohio, Kentucky, and then Tennessee on south. All of these groups were coming to these similar conclusions around the same times, and some of them took different things further than others. So, what do you make of this, the miraculous number of similarities between the Stone side and the Campbell side of our movement? Here's what I think. I think that the Bible itself is self-corrective. When people approach the Scriptures openly and honestly, when you don't bring to it a a denominational agenda or an axe to grind, uh, we're able to grow in our understanding and our faith. I don't believe 
the exact same way I did as a 20-year-old. I've grown in wisdom. I've grown in knowledge. The things that worried me and that I fought over as a 20-year-old, they don't they're not as important to me anymore. The things I emphasize, that has changed. Once you dig into Scripture and you come back to Scripture openly and honestly, there's a refining process that goes on there. And then, largely, I see there's a Holy Spirit who has an agenda of His own. He's working quietly. He's working humbly. But He's powerful. And He helps us fix our eyes on Jesus And in Jesus, we find each other. Well, it wasn't long before disciples and Christian churches, they began merging together. It was the freedom of local congregations discovering each other. They didn't have a synod or a presbytery or someone saying, you can't be hanging out with those people. But they began to discover each other in this kind of a grassroots movement. Stone Campbell churches began to unite And they didn't have to wait for permission. They didn't have to wait for authorization for this to happen. They just saw one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they extended the right hand of fellowship to each other. Well, the first such merger took place in Millersburg, Kentucky, on April 24th of 1831. The week before this, there were two churches. But on that Sunday morning, they just stopped meeting in separate locations, and they met in one place. The week before, they were disciples and Christians. But now on this Sunday morning, they weren't just disciples and Christians. Now together, they recognized each other as the Church of Christ. When churches started uniting, restoration leaders decided to hold a general meeting of multiple churches with representatives from both the Stone side of the movement and the Campbell side of the movement to discuss the possibility of unification together. Raccoon John Smith was chosen to present the disciples' beliefs and their case for unification. And then Barton W. Stone would follow up sharing their beliefs and the two sides after they had both presented their positions on things. They would discuss the question and the possibility of union with each other. So Raccoon John Smith representing the Campbell side, he began to speak and he talked for quite a while about their beliefs and why they believed it. And he concluded with these words. He said, let us then, my brethren, no longer, be no longer Campbellites or Stoneites, new lights or old lights or any other kind of lights, but let us come to the Bible and the Bible alone as the only book in the world that can give us all the light we need. And with that, now it was Barton W. Stone's turn to speak and to present the case for the Christians. But Stone, he didn't say a word. He was speechless. He just walked toward raccoon John Smith with an outstretched hand.
just walked toward him with an outstretched hand. Smith took that right hand of fellowship. And that's recognized as the moment when the two groups became one church, united in Christ. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there, where? Brothers and sisters together in unity. For there, the Lord bestows his blessing. Even life forevermore. Psalm 133. Well, how do you get news out to hundreds of autonomous congregations? Well, they began to talk about it in their publications. A lot of publications came out about this unification that was taking place. And in my mind, this would have been one of the coolest jobs in ministry of all times because they chose Raccoon John Smith for the disciples and John Rogers for the Christians, and they sent them out on horseback traveling to every community where there were two churches, and they urged the brothers and sisters in those different congregations to become one. And sometimes the churches, they just stopped meeting separately and started meeting together other times. They just recognized each other as brothers and sisters and kept meeting in their separate locations. But from time to time, uh, but from, not time to time, but from this time, this unification, this united movement, when that happened, this became the fastest growing Christian body in the United States of America in the 19th century. In fact, this church, this united church, grew so fast that by the conclusion of the Civil War and by 1870, a census, it was discovered that our movement had become the fifth largest group in the United States of America. Our, rest, our restoration ideal, it held us together even though as autonomous churches we had a wide variety of different forms and practices. We had some churches that read verses in the New Testament and they made decisions based on what they read in the Bible. And some churches they decided to have women serve as deacons. Other churches, the majority of churches, said, no, I don't think we want that. Some churches decided to use instruments to accompany their worship. Other churches decided, no, we don't think that this is a good idea for these reasons. Some churches, they chose to support and collect funds for a missionary society to help organize evangelism efforts. The Bible talks a lot about a mission and evangelism and things like that, but it doesn't give us specifics on how we accomplish that. So some churches, they thought, it's best for us to pool our money and our resources and organize this better than a local congregation can do. Other churches said, no, uh, we don't think that 
um, we should have an organization above the local church, and we just need to figure this out as our own church. Well, it wasn't these issues that split us, and it wasn't even the American Civil War, but it was a combination of factors that led to a gradual drifting apart and a loss of fellowship after the, the lives of the first generation unity dreamers after they passed away. And so in our day and age, there are multiple groups that have this Stone Campbell heritage in our DNA. And I remember as an old undergraduate student, the first class I took on a religious history in America, uh, the author had a 300-page textbook and, and, and they were huge pages, and a lot of information on just a single page. But for our entire movement, that entire book gave the restoration plea and cause three paragraphs out of a large page, 300-page book. And the author concluded that these unity dreamers, they had failed in their dream. And Christian unity based on the Bible it is a lost cause. In fact, this is his exact words, what he said about it. In growth, they flourished. In unity, they failed. For not only did the disciples fail to heal the divisions within Christendom, they added to them by bringing new denominations into the still quarreling camp. Well, there's a, a, lot of more, a lot more interesting history that we could look at, and maybe someday down the road we could put some more of this in a Bible class or something like this. But I have to say, I disagree with this author's assessment. We lived a unity dream within our movement, and we did for a long time. And there's always going to people, be people out there who tell you that Christian unity, it's impossible for this, that reason, whatever. And that you're foolish maybe for even trying. But this isn't just the dream of these unity dreamer, dreamers. This dream of Christian unity is the prayer of Jesus Christ himself. So we have these religious pioneers, Thomas and Alexander Campbell, Walter Scott, Barton W. Stone, and many others. They got to live the dream of unity based on simple forms and practices found within the Bible itself. They got to live that dream. So just kind of, this is going to be hard to read, the Restoration Timeline. So... You can kind of see here the stone side and the Campbell side. And the 1832, the beginning of that year, the two groups merged into one. And then we have explosive growth. And a gradual, after the Civil War, gradual breaking apart of fellowship. We had issues that we talked about. But we just started and we were geographically isolated in a lot of ways. We stopped recognizing each other as brothers and sisters. We stopped uh, having fellowship together. And so the movement split to the Christian churches and the churches of Christ. Later on, the Christian church side, 
they had a division more or less between uh, independent Christian churches and Christian churches that call themselves disciples of Christ. Now, there's different emphases within all of these different groups. Within our own movement, we have the International Churches of Christ coming out of our movement in the mid-90s. But before that, we even had further splits over, and it's not represented there, but institutional versus non-institutional churches. We had issues of, can we have a kitchen or not? Uh, what do we feel about Sunday school? Should we be uh, having multiple communion sets or should we be one cuppers? There were a lot of different ways that we uh, split things up and parse things over the years. Well, let me share with you a few of the things I, th- I feel like I've learned in my study of all of this. First, I've learned that there has never been a time in history that was so dark that we were beyond the reach of the Lord and the possibility of the Holy Spirit bringing revival. It shocked me to discover that the turn of the the century in the very early 1800s, that it was a less church, less religious time than even our day here in 2021 Eugene, Springfield, Oregon area. That was shocking to me. The seeds, I believe, of God's next great revival in America, they're already alive and well. They're already hidden in our churches. We just don't know when they're going to take root and when they're going to bloom. That's something we don't control. That depends on the Lord. I also see that it looks to me like revival is bigger than just this church. And it's not going to take place until we find ways to unite with others. I'm not even talking other churches necessarily. It begins with each of us in this room. A level of unity that's greater than what we now experience even. I think we ought to go deep in this before the Spirit is going to... And it's going to take the Spirit's help to get there. It's going to take the Word of God to help us get there. And I don't think this should be threatening to us. Uh, Because I'm not talking about, I'm not saying we shouldn't just sweep aside the uniqueness of our heritage, sweep aside the uniqueness of our history. I don't think we have to be threatened by or demonize other sincere believers who arrive at conclusions that are slightly different than our own. I think churches of Christ have a lot we can offer to a broader Christian community. I believe that. And then I have to say that unity cannot be based on loving the Word of God, the commands of God, or the ways of God less, but more. we got to dig in, and we got to go deep with that. So, uh, and I say that because the Word of God and the guidance of the Holy Spirit can save us from a lot of dead-end paths. And some of these dead-end paths that I see uh, I'm just going to be frank on, in my assessment. Legalism has been a problem that has plagued our movement. A legalistic, a legalist says that Christian unity, it can only be found in believing everything exactly the right way. And it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And so we have jokes about a guy saying, well, the only one I'm sure is going, who are going to heaven is me and my wife. And really, honestly, I'm not even sure about her. 
Legalism is a, a Pharisaic approach to the Scripture that obsesses over keeping the letter of the law, and yet the problem is the heart is never fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. Legalists are quick to make judgments about who are in and who are out, and someone who they judge is out. They're very quick to cut those ties, and they don't lose any sleep over it. Can you see a heart problem there? A legalistic mind obsesses over ticking off the right boxes and yet remains blinded by their own pride, blinded to their own areas of greatest need. Jesus referred to it this way, obsessing over the speck in your brother's eye and all the time being oblivious to the two-by-four plank sticking out of your own eye, the irony of that. So that's one dead end for Christian unity, I believe. And yet, we've kind of come out of some of that a little bit, I believe, by God's grace. And there are groups that have run completely to the other side of that. And so I would say this about progressive Christianity or theological liberalism. Progressive Christianity says that Christian unity can only be found when we just accept everyone. Everyone just accepts each other as they are. That our differences in belief, they don't matter. They don't really matter. God didn't mean that when he said that. And there are plenty of people who may think me uncharitable or small-minded for saying this. But I think a lot of times progressive Christianity, uh, when, when it just accepts and blesses the filth of our culture, it's a dead end. It squelches the fire of the Holy Spirit, and it will not create true unity nor bring revival. Progressive Christianity lets go of the Bible as the authoritative word of God. And when the, when the Bible is no longer your authority, is no longer your standard, you end up picking and choosing what it is that you want to follow. This creates a situation where God no longer sets the standard, but we set the standard. I'll choose for myself. Thank you very much. I don't like this. Let me take Romans chapter 1. In fact, let me take most of Paul out of here. I have a problem with this. When God no longer expects certain things of us, truth becomes relative instead of absolute. When there's no more truth, there's no more sin. When there's no more sin, there's no more need of repentance. When we lose repentance, we lose the power and the meaning of the cross. And when we lose the cross, we lose Jesus Christ. So what is our clear path to unity? I think our movement, it got rid of a lot of obstacles that a lot of groups maybe still have to wrestle with in a different level. So I didn't know what to call this. This is our Church of Christ DNA. I call it some of the gifts of the heritage that we have received. The gift of congregational autonomy. 
with congregational autonomy, we have freedom to experiment and to be creative, that we don't have to answer to an authority above this local church, that the only authority we have is ourselves and the eldership over us. There's a lot of freedom that comes with that. It's also a big responsibility, but I believe the autonomy that we have is a real gift. Another gift, we don't have professional clergy. Uh, We are a part of a priesthood of all believers. There are no second-class citizens in this room. Uh, This means both freedom and responsibility as well. Freedom and authority because each of you are ministers. Freedom and authority because each of you are priests. Each of you have authority, but also responsibility. There's also a lot of responsibility there. Um, Freedom because there's no middleman between you and the Lord your God. Responsibility because God, God, he expects more from you than just sitting here being a religious consumer. He expects more of you than that. That's responsibility. Another gift that we've been given is our high view of Scripture. The Bible is authoritative. It's the Word of God. It is the book that God intended for us to have. It's a fascinating process through which we got the Bible. But we have what God wants us to have. The Bible is meant to be followed, and it's meant to be applied to our lives. It is meant to be a standard for us. That's a gift of our heritage. So more things I've learned. Revival, it comes to us sometimes in different ways. Um, I was surprised at how crazy this Cane Ridge revival was. Uh, And yet the fruit of that produced some really good things. Um... It comes to us in different ways because revival, it, was, it came in the dramatic outpouring of, of the Holy Spirit of certain uh, gifts and exercises at the Cane Ridge revival that helped Christians in a lot of ways who were stuck. And it helped those churches get unstuck and Christians begin to talk about their faith, take their faith seriously. Uh, uh, contemplate what a life of service would be to the Lord, Uh, give themselves over to repentance. And I'm not saying there weren't problems or weaknesses with that. But on the other side, revival came through just brothers and sisters sitting down together and reasoning from the scriptures, like we saw with uh, Walter Scott and the uh, Mahoning Association of Baptists in Ohio that there was a revival that just came from reasoning together from the Scriptures. And so I see that the Lord uses all of that, I believe, to produce the fruit of the kingdom and bring us to new places and places that He desires for us. So in our beginnings, we practiced a lot more life-on-life discipleship, and this is something we really took seriously. And praise God for it. Uh, I think we'd lost that in the last few decades, an emphasis on each of our responsibility here to be discipling the people around us. 
within your household, within your friendship groups, within this church. It's part of my role in ministry here. It's part of the role of the shepherds of this church. I hope it's something our deacons grow into more and more. Um, so today, in a little bit, we're going to honor Ben Hoffman, who is receiving his God and Country Award. And he's been working with Kirk and Jonathan doing this, and I see that as a process of discipleship. I think there are a lot of lessons for us to learn in discipleship. And I got to say, I believe that one of the gifts that God has given us in having the Sequoia team here is I think Jonathan, Kirk, and Mackenzie, they can help teach us some things about discipleship. They can learn some things from us, but they can teach us some things too. And so I don't know all the reasons for the way things have worked out, but I believe God has goodness in store for us to, through these relationships. But life-on-life discipleship, another part of our beginnings, we talked a lot more about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Originally, that was in our DNA too. It wasn't just an intellectual head thing. It was, Scott was on the, the Campbell side of things, but even he recognized we need to be focusing and talking about the Holy Spirit. Well, we lost that in, in subsequent years. But that was what I learned was there in our beginnings, and it's very obvious. In our beginnings, we were explorers and innovators, holding wide variety within our fellowship. There was maybe a tension there in differences over practice, but there was a wide variety within our movement that we didn't feel like we needed to split over. All right. In our beginnings, we didn't have the same attitudes historically of a kind of exclusivity that we are the only ones who are right and the rest of you are going to burn in hell. We didn't have that kind of attitude in our beginnings. In fact, a famous slogan that we had is we used to say, we're not the only Christians, but we're Christians only. And so, as we're wrapping up, maybe just kind of a way to wrap, wrap up and a way to wake us up a little bit more. Do you know some of these mottos adopted from the Restoration Movement? I think some of these mottos, they were used to help people capture some of the essence of what our movement was about. So, raise your hand, or if you're in the parking lot, you can honk your horn if you have heard any of these Stone Campbell mottos. And, and as you know, growing up or heard it around different places. No creed but Christ. Raise your hand if you heard that one. No car honks. Okay. Next one. The Bible is our only rule of faith and practice. You heard that one? Okay, we got a car honk too. A number of hands up here. How about this one? In essentials, unity. In opinions, liberty. In all things, love. If you heard that one. That's been part of one of the phrases we used in our beginnings. How about this one? Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. Have you heard that one? Oh, almost most people have raised their hands in that one. How about this one? We are not the only Christians, but we're Christians only. You heard that one. A lot of people have heard this one too. Some of the slogans of our, of our early beginnings that we still use today. 
Well, this 1832 union of the Stone Movement with the Campbell Movement, it proves that Christian unity based on going back to the Bible is possible. It proved that as well. This is the goal of restoring in our time the early church in its simplicity, in the early church in its vitality, the early church in its focus and its mission. That is the restoration hope and plea. So Barton Stone said this, Christian unity should be our polar star. It should be our polar star. But Stone asked the question, how do we come to this unity? How do we come to unity? He said there are people within our movement. We're looking for book unity. And what he talked about is book unity. He talked about is, well, maybe we can just write a creed for everyone to sign. Create a document of our mutual understanding. Create a document to make sure we're all on the same page. Maybe that will give us unity. We said, no way for our movement. What about a head union he talked about? If we just give everyone a Bible, we can expect them to all interpret every passage the same way. That'll take care of the problems, and that'll give us unity. That also is insufficient. Well, Stone talked about this. Well, what about water union? We'll just make sure that we're all baptized the exact same way. Adult immersion for the uh, remission of sins. If we all do that the right way, then we'll have unity. There are a lot of us who have been baptized the same way, who are very far from united. It's not going to be enough for us either. And Stone finally said this, none of those things are sufficient to give us Christian unity. And the one thing that can is what he called fire union. Fire union. We are united by the fire of God's Holy Spirit. We're united by God's presence among us. The Holy Spirit who draws our hearts to each other. The Holy Spirit who knits us together. In the end... It's only the work of the Lord himself that is going to give us the unity that we long for and the unity that we need. But we have to go after it and we have to trust. So what we need for Christian unity is a fire union. So dad, you can come up here. So the invitation I have this morning, my dad did a good job leading songs for us so far. Proud of my dad. Our invitation uh, this morning, uh, there are a couple things I want to bring up. Barton Stone, he came a long way in just the few weeks, the six weeks we've been talking about this, from a secular young law student who wouldn't give God the time of day to leading a restoration movement of Christian unity. He came a long way. The Lord used this man and other leaders like this to accomplish a lot of good. And I'm not saying these early restoration leaders did everything just right, but I call these men unity dreamers because they looked over the denominational walls of their time 
and they dreamed about a different kind of life and they asked a different question. What if? What if? Stone held that the greatest accomplishment of his entire life was his role in uniting the disciples and the Christians to be one Church of Christ. That was the highlight of his life. In Stone's old wor- own words, he said this, this union I view as the noblest act of my life. The noblest act of my, my life. And so the invitation for us, I think most of us discover that the things that define us most, the things that we're most proud of, are not the things that separate us, are not the walls that we build to separate us from each other. But the greatest possibility of human life is to find a God who loves you, a God who's crazy about you, a Lord and Savior who longs for your fellowship. And when you begin to love God like that, and when you begin to experience God as your lover, then we are led ever deeper into the heart of God. And on that journey into the heart of God, we look up and we see other people that the Lord is doing this exact same work with. We discover each other in Jesus Christ. That is the opportunity that's been given to us. And so I would say that's a unity dream worth living. That's a dream worth holding on to. I hope you've enjoyed this series and been blessed by it. For those of you who this hasn't been your thing, I appreciate your patience. We'll be in First Peter next week. If you want the prayers of this church, if you have some kind of need uh, that you want to share, you can come and talk to me. And uh, if you want to put the Lord on in baptism, we do have a baptistry right back here. want to use that thing some, some, some more this year as well. So you let us know how we can help you while we stand and we sing together.